Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. happens all the time. In this episode of the IO Idea Podcast, I'm joined by researcher, entrepreneur, and author Varun Marugasan. Varun is co-founder and head of research at Apple and Banana, where he believes that everyone can do fruitful research. Varun has spent his career immersed in psychology, technology, and design at organizations like Facebook, United Health Group, and Best Buy, along with rising startups across the country. When he's not sharing perspectives, collaborations, and applications of fruitful research, he can be seen teaching his dog how to roll over, going for runs, and playing Last of Us. Varun and I dig into his journey into UX research and finding a more meaningful career. We discuss the founding of Apple Banana and what it's like to build a company with your brothers, who are identical triplets. We mix it up on ways to improve collaboration and embrace leaderless teams. Check out the special link that Varun and the Apple and Banana team created for our listeners as he shares his journey and the things that he's learned as a UX researcher. It was a pleasure having Varun on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, could you tell me and our guests a little bit about yourself? Uh, Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'll keep it simple. I'm a Gemini. I like long walks on the beach. Uh, Something about the stars, the way they twinkle. No. Uh, Right now, I'm head of research at Apple and Banana, which is a research company that we have created to help make research more accessible for anyone. So that's my driving vision. Uh, As a daytime gig, I'm also a research manager at Best Buy, where I'm focused on improving the employee experience for our field and retail and in-home employees. So it's a really interesting juxtaposition of writing about research and then leading and managing research for a Fortune 100. Great. Thanks. There's a lot that I do want to jump into, but uh, why don't we just start with Apple and Banana? What what was your inspiration to to start that? And uh, making research accessible. Let me know what that means to you. Mm-hmm. Apple and Banana, if you look at our brand, uh, if you go to appleandbanana.org, if you look at our brand, it's very simple, it's playful, it's engaging. But Apple and Banana really started in some dark times. When I was trying to pivot out of this career, uh, not even a career, it was a bunch of jobs that I had in the healthcare space, because I thought you had to be in healthcare to help people at least in the U.S., uh, I was looking at spreadsheets. Everybody was a number in a spreadsheet in a database somewhere. If people got sick, even more, that went down on a spreadsheet. We did profit of some of these kind of models, at least in the U.S. I felt very just uncomfortable with that work. I was very removed from people. I studied psychology in undergrad, and I was consistently doing experiments and uh, good research studies outside the classroom. And this job was not that. It was a far removed from people. And I was like, how do I pivot into a career that's actually meaningful to me? So I found out about this UX thing because I was frustrated one day, uh, December 2016. I went to Google. I talked to three things that are the most interesting to me, psychology, technology, and design. One of the articles was about this thing called user experience. What is this? I clicked it. I was intrigued. I was like, what is this? This is a job. This is like a real thing that people can do for money. This is incredible. I kept reading a bunch of articles. I realized the design side wasn't necessarily for me, but this research side was. And then I tried really hard to find good, accessible research content. Couldn't find it. And a lot of the content out there, all these big name talks, and even some of these podcast guests come from big tech, right? 
They've been in the game 20 years. PhD from Stanford, Harvard. They did research on Jupiter. And you're like, how am I ever supposed to traverse this gap and maybe do this thing that I think is meaningful, that I think I could do really well? So it was frustrating at that moment. I was like, I just feel kind of alone. You know, all the same research articles are do methods, do methods faster and get stakeholders involved. And I was like, we're missing a lot of the gaps in between. How do we succinctly fill that? So Apple and Banana was born out of that frustration, out of that isolation of there's probably a lot of people that feel like this. I think this thing could be for me. I'm just not sure what's there. I know it's more than methods. I know it's more than stakeholder buy-in. I know there's more than just putting things onto Post-its and calling it affinity diagram. So that's where Apple and Banana really started. And so that's what we mean by accessible. It has to be a low enough barrier that you can feel like I could do this. I could actually be good at this thing. That is great. So I, and also the, the accessible, because, uh, you know, throwing my mental model on the table, it's always weird when I'm talking to other, other designers and researchers too. So, uh, but putting my mental model too is what I'm hearing is the accessibility as it relates to uh, may, maybe that uh, it doesn't have to be an exclusive club that there, mm-hmm. there are only a few anointed uh, UX superstars that get right. to dictate what's going on. Right. And my mental model, putting together what you heard, is the value of what good research and insights in, into humans can enable for us uh, mm-hmm. is also powerful, right? So right. I'm kind of hearing the, the more people that we can help do this, the better. And then also we, we don't need a superstar caste system of mm-hmm. uh, a few self-anointed experts, right? Because right. the field itself was kind of self-created, right? Unless right. unless you were basically a Bell Labs human <laughs> computer interaction person, right? A lot of people that came into it, even with 25 years experience, like like mm-hmm. myself, right? I, right? I I came at it from broadcasted film and group dynamics. That's how I got into the field, right? Right. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't have uh, have that that specific journey. So uh, I find I find the reason why you're doing this really compelling, and I do want to dig into that. I want to back up maybe a little bit as well. Is how did you get interested in psychology in the first place? Uh, people always ask me this. They're like, "Hey, why psychology? You could have gone to study anything and everything." Um, I went to the University of Minnesota. We have a really strong mechanical and biomechanical engineering program. Really strong dental school, chemical engineering. A lot of good stuff why psychology? And a lot of my peers will say, I want to know what makes people tick. I always found that frustrating because so there's so many things that make people frustrated and angry every day. And honestly, I could care less what makes somebody angry. I'd rather focus on what makes you excited, what makes you feel like you have passion and meaning and direction in your life. So I like psychology for those reasons. How do you peel back the layers to figure out what actually is here? What actually drives us? What are we running towards? And also, what are we running away from? So psychology was great to add some frameworks to that, add some methods, some approaches that you could use across situations to kind of dig a little deeper. What I like about psychology is that it is a science. So each year we're learning and we're kind of getting rid of past knowledge. We used to think this in the 90s. Boy, we were way off. There's no way that's that anymore. We've got all these fancy tools and we can use different technology to get deeper. So psychology was able to give me that science foundation, but connect that to the people uh, around me. Great. And so uh, you did your undergrad at the University of Minnesota? Yep. So uh, were you in Minneapolis prior to undergrad? Yeah, we had moved here uh, back in when fourth grade. We, okay. had, we did live in Iowa for a little bit. But then my dad had two different jobs, I believe, and we were kind of shuttling between Minneapolis and Hiawatha, a small yeah. town in Iowa. Yep. And so for six months, every weekend, we were driving back and forth because he had a gig there and a gig here. And it, it was just efficient at that time. But after a while, we we're like, hey, the kids need to go to one school. They need to have foundations and stability. So then we stayed in Minneapolis. It was better school district. Uh, my father had some good opportunities here. And we had a bunch of family friends in Minneapolis. So oh, that that's great. And uh, I can't imagine from a kid perspective because I um, 
this is my second time living in Iowa City, and I've lived in Minneapolis for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the drive back and forth between the Twin Cities and <laughs> and uh, Iowa City is not very exciting. We made it a game, though. We would get up and, like, we'd wake up early in the morning. we get, uh, like, our big blankets out. you drive to the uh, travel stop or whatever. you get, like, a heat up soup from the vending machine. And we would lose our minds because it was hot and it was salty and it was great. And then we go right back to bed and play games with the, by my two brothers. And I don't know. My father probably hated it more than we did. We made it a big adventure. Oh, no, that's great. And um, for listeners, uh, this is something that is I, I find curious and interesting. Your two brothers, your triplets. Right? And identical triplets. Identical triplets. Uh, so uh, did you did you all go to the University of Minnesota as well? We did. Uh, it was fantastic because they had a family package, is what I call it, because we all went from one house, right? And then we yeah. got a whole bunch of discounts on top of scholarships just because it was more affordable that way. So we all went to the U. We all studied drastically different things. A lot of people ask us, so are you all, Are you guys all researchers? Are you guys all in the UX space? And it's like, not necessarily. We have very different uh, skill sets and passions. I like research. I like writing. I like content in that sense. My brother Rishi does all our design, front end, UI, UX, uh, packaging, type, all of it goes through him. And then my brother CV does all of our growth, our marketing, our sales, and our product strategy. What are we running towards? So it's fantastic because we each, uh, it's like the Justice League, right? You need differences to have a really strong like Justice League or Avengers. You can't have like 10 Iron Mans being like, we got 10 Iron Mans. That doesn't work. So we bring something unique in the table, but that's where the challenges start because we all view the world so differently. If I see a problem, I'm looking at this. If he sees a problem, he's like this. And then we have to learn how to communicate. So that was our first challenge is building a shared language around problems. Because then we can like, okay, I get why you're focused on growth in this way. And here's what I'm thinking. Then boom, we're having better ideas. And we're able to move a little bit faster. So that's been like the challenging, but the really cool part of working with CB and Rishi. That's great. So uh, just going to throw it out it sounds it sounds like you, you get along well enough right in the beginning like growing up as kids we were like happy and then in like middle school we started to like hate each other because we we're like teenage angst right you're like ah man i'm the cool one in the house and i'm everyone should know me then through high school we started to become like closer to recognize that hey you are like different and not just you don't you don't just look like me, but you have different skill sets. Can we use that? And then in college, so we really started to work together. And now that we're full time employed elsewhere, we're able to work together and have a lot of passion. Because at work, I kind of do things that I'm told and trying to adhere to a schedule. Whereas the apple and banana, it's what excites me this week. What can we do to actually change uh, the world the, the way that we want to as a as a team? That's great. Uh, and uh, just. Out of uh, kind of an interest in in teams and team dynamics, I really do appreciate what you were saying about like you can't have all Ironmen because I've I've talked about that with uh, with teams that I coach and also when I'm coaching organizations on uh, team dynamics. Sometimes using a sports analogy is you're not going to have a very good basketball team if it's five shooting guards or if it's five right. centers, right? and and yet you 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 still have to uh, dynamically kind of react and respond to what's going on. Like, you know, are we going with a bigger lineup for, you know, or for your, right. do we have to may, maybe this problem that we're addressing, it calls more for kind of the, the growth perspective, or this calls more for the content perspective, right. Or this is a development challenge. And so that's almost the the idea. What I'm hearing is leaderless teams, right. They're not leadership lists. It's like who, right. who can take the lead based on, on what needs to get done. I mean, I think you call it a good point. If I could talk for 10 seconds on this, it has been challenging, but also the most rewarding to recognize that this is a design problem. This is best solved from a design perspective. I might want to go do some research. That's who I am. That's where I like get excited. And we might want a growth strategy. Well, maybe this hampers growth, blah, blah, blah. No, this is a design perspective problem. We're going to attach it from that perspective and we find the most success. The more that we work together, the more I'm training my brain to take in data as inputs and be like, it's best approached from this way. 
And more often than not, that initial gut instinct, right? It's not like a mathematical formula. This is marketing and this is growth. This looks like a marketing thing. I can feel it. I'm going to attack it this way. It's been successful. Let's keep moving forward. And so that's been fantastic. And I love your con- this concept of leadership, leaderless. What was it? Leaderless teams? Leaderless teams. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly what we have. But there's also like so many challenges with where do we move forward? We luckily have three people. So we're never at like a voting stalemate. But then how do you get the guy that didn't get included to come along with the journey? So that's a that's a whole other podcast in and of itself. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, when it when it comes to digging in on on research. So you're talking about UX. I just want to talk about your journey a little bit more and your interest uh, for you is where did the research side uh, really kind of emerge? Because, you know, UX sometimes is almost this kitchen sink kind of, you know, right. like what at certain times, what isn't UX? Uh, and and may, maybe a topic for another time. One of the things I find funny is during my career, uh, the arc of designers wanting a seat at the table, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then it seemed like when they got a seat at the table, the, uh, uh, the spotlight of accountability was a little harsh. So then it's like, wait, wait, what, what's, what's design? What, what is right. And so we hear things shifting, uh, but it can be a lot of things, but I really do appreciate kind of that, that design approach that you've talked about and that it's a design problem or design challenge. Uh, But also uh, just from a a nerd perspective is I, I basically grew up first on the, the, the research side is Mm -hmm. the insights and the needs, but I'm curious on what attracted you to that part of uh, user experience. I mean, it started definitely from undergrad because we were able to run and we had to run different experiments and studies to write papers around, right? We take something in class. uh, You have to go out in the real world, go do something with it, learn with it, engage with it, which is what I really liked about the U. It wasn't just read the textbook. Here's the quiz. Here's the grade. You're on to the next class. It was, here's an idea. You have to go apply it. You have to see where you can stretch this idea. Where does it fail? And why is that? Can we figure out and have more meaningful conversation? That's what got me excited with like, you can actually do this. It's not just dry textbook, right? You can actually go out and apply. And then from there, I was part of a startup uh, accelerator or incubator on campus. It was the first one at the U. And we got to work with a whole bunch of different just startups, small businesses, and even some of the U's own academic departments on reaching goals from a business or hyper like tactical perspective. How do we get some stuff done? Not just maybe we'll get funding. We got to do something now to get engagement, to get people aware about this initiative and do something. That was great because that got me out in the field. And so for me, when you're talking about research and what cho- what I ran toward is clarity. A lot of people talk about insights and needs gathering and needs finding. To me, what really resonates with me about research is clarity. There's that one thing that you find that maybe sticks out, right? You're like, I don't know, that seems like an outlier. We use this term outlier or anomaly. You look at that in isolation, it does maybe seem like an outlier, but you look at it together with all your data, that thing, that outlier, that might put everything else into perspective. It clicks. You're like, of course, they're doing blank and blank and blank. And it sounds so crazy. But for me, that's the clarity I like to give to stakeholders. They look at the problem differently. I think there's a huge misconception in any sort of applied research that we're going to tell you what to do. Matt, this is the recommendation. And we've got statistics and we got a model and we did interviews and all this. Boom, this direction is going to for sure win. I think that's fundamentally the wrong way to look at it. I spend a lot of my time understanding what people around me are interested in, figuring out what are your goals. And then from there, I do research and then I get you to reframe the problem. You are going to be able to solve it better. You're able to connect with it better. You're going to have ownership of it. And then we figure out where can you change? What's your ability to change? Then I do that research and you're like, we can totally put the back button there. We can totally put the menu to that side and that could totally work. That's what we have to do. That's fantastic. So the clarity around research is what really draws me uh, to keep doing what I do. I like that. And it resonates with me because one of my my personal beliefs, one of the ways I try to structure uh, teams, problems, especially, you know, in the in the innovation space or where things are just squishy, right? It's not it's not a clear problem solution uh, 
It's not an accounting problem, right? Uh, right. And when uh, one of the big terms that I try to use is uh, accuracy, and, right? It's like, mm-hmm. do we have an accurate target here, right? Rather than uh, where I where I see organizations, and this kind of goes back to also we are referencing lots of data and spreadsheets, but uh, I think mm-hmm. many organizations confuse precision with accuracy. Uh, right. So they have a lot of numbers on an inaccurate target, right? And they, they can go after that and they can do what they were supposed to do, but it, it won't be successful because they didn't have the accurate target. And I do feel like from a research perspective, getting those insights and also right the user goals, their needs, and, mm-hmm. and probably more importantly, like what's preventing them from reaching their goals or going even further, like, what do they even think they'll do if they reach their goal, right? Because sometimes mm-hmm. they have a hard time articulating their goal. And it, it provides such a rich space for new solutions, right, that you could right. help them. Uh, so what I don't know if you want to talk to this, but I always find it interesting is how do uh, researchers that are looking to understand the problem, or fall in love with the problem or frame it, right, all these, all these working with stakeholders that feel like they already know it and we we just need to go talk to people and we should have a report in two weeks so that right we we have a sprint right. or we have these mini waterfalls that we're doing so we need it done right. how how do you look at that space and how do you maybe even use a little bit of your psychology background to help see the value in uh getting to those you know kind of those accurate targets or understanding customer goal right With the psychology degree, like what I was doing is a lot of uh, general science, right? Can I add to the knowledge that already exists about said psychological principle or behavior, right? It's a very positivistic mindset. You're going to add to it. It's going to get expanding over time. A lot of the research right now is applied research. Hey, Matt, can you come in? I need to solve this problem, right? Can you give me something? We're not going to do research on how people look at buying shoes and then say, hey, the world can have this, right? That's proprietary knowledge. We are building products. This is a competitive edge. We can't just give that out. So half the time when you're talking to stakeholders, give it in two weeks. Some of the questions I ask, why two weeks? People don't say, because of the sprint. Why is the sprint two weeks? Because someone told me the sprint should be two weeks. That's really not a good way to approach anything. Then after that, I spend a lot of time asking questions around, let's say we did the world's best study. That's not even a thing, but let's say we did it. We had 100,000 respondents to your survey. We had the best interviews or the best usability testing, whatever. Let's say the study just wrapped up. What's your next move? If your next move is not significantly changed because of this research, I'm not going to do it. Why did I waste this time if you're going to say, cool, and then go on with whatever direction that you want? So if you're talking to these stakeholders, what happens right after the study is done? What are you going to do differently as a result of this research? That, to me, is a huge misconception people have. It is not an actionable problem that you set out to study. An example we use in our book is, would it be really interesting to find out that 90% of your users like blue dinosaurs? That is totally interesting. Wow, that's so cool. They like blue dinosaurs. Would it change anything about how your SaaS product works? Absolutely not, right? You're like, why would I study that? Then if you pull that a little further, would it change if you were a toy maker that makes dinosaur toys? Yes. So not only is it the problem you set out to understand, it's what are your goals? If you make dinosaur toys, yeah, we're going to make more blue dinosaurs. If you're going to make SaaS products, that's really cool. But don't tell a researcher to go out and study it. And then in two weeks, we need a report. It's got to go fast. We need 100,000 respondents. We need all this data that you're never going to look at. And then boom, Matt drops a deck on your uh, desk and you're like, cool, I don't care about blue dinosaurs now. I'm going to go do this other thing. So it's having these conversations and being vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I love like uh, digging in and asking some of the whys on uh, what I would categorize as organizational folklore is when (laughs) when people don't know why they're really doing these things, um, like the sprint's always been two weeks. We always break sprint, and, and then you then you'll talk to people. Well, and one of my favorites is when when you get well, that's best practice. Where have you have you applied this elsewhere? No, no. Okay, so then it's your practice. It, it's your it, right. 
and it doesn't mean it's a best practice, right? It's contextually dependent. What we're trying to do is get to the intent of, hey, do you know do you know why the sprints were always two weeks? Because maybe you know maybe something's changed, right? Maybe mm-hmm. maybe it, maybe it mean, was maybe Joe only had a printer that could, <laughs> could put two weeks worth right. in, uh, when they were doing workshops. It's, it's an artificial constraint. I mean, right. when I, when people talk about best practice, the thing I think about is why don't you and I go out and do the exact workout and meal plan of LeBron James, right? It's best practice. He's one of the world's best basketball players. Let me go buy his size, like 15 shoes. Let me eat 6,000 calories a day and let me travel around and like have all of these things. It's LeBron James. It's not best practice. It's practice that works for him. Right, right, So a lot of the researchers that I talked to, a lot of the isolation, this is like a big passion moment for me. Mm -hmm. A lot of the researchers feel like they're doing crappy garbage research. Because they've been told the best research is by big tech, by these big name companies. So that completely devalues the fact that I was able to get out a survey in a really quick amount of time for here. I was able to get 150 really quality responses, or I had some great interviews. But then you look at big tech, you're like, well, I guess I I didn't really do anything. And I'm just like, you know, just messing around here. I'm not really a researcher. So this concept of best practice, I think, is completely demoralizing to a lot of the researchers where it's just me on a team. And they're looking at me to be the expert. And at the same time, I'm running interviews. I got to be doing a card sort. I got to find new research needs. And then you watch a video and you're like, Facebook got 100,000 respondents in two hours. And you're like, well, guess I didn't really do anything today, right? The best practice is just so much more demoralizing than it is helpful. But if you went down to LeBron James and you're like, tell me about your meals, tell me about your workouts, and then you figure out why he's doing those things. I can use that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're hitting on a passion area for me, which is that is, is the intent that sits behind that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so, uh, and yeah, for, for LeBron, just sticky with a LeBron example too, right. Is like, hey, can you can you walk me through your workout routine, your practice routine, and then as a researcher, so tell me a little bit about why you're doing that, and right. then you then you can start to see like why he works on certain fundamentals the way he does, right? And but it doesn't mean that somebody that just tries to mimic that is going to get the same results as right. well, right? But I think what opens up so many opportunities if you can really dig into that that intent and why. Mm-hmm. these experts are doing that or how they see the world, then I think you have a lot there. Uh, and sometimes I think, you know, it's, it's, I think it's like dealing with little kids. Sometimes I don't have the time to explain all these safety measures to you. So right. just please don't play with matches. <laughs> right? Just, just yeah. I know something, just listen, just listen so, to me. Yeah. So striking that balance, uh, let me throw this one out there uh, from a research standpoint for uh, ways that can deflate or demoralize researchers. Uh, The other ones I love is we need to do research to validate why we made this decision. I just, I can't, the logic (laughs) is, is so flawed. We need to do research to validate this decision at that moment. But it happens all the time, right? Right. It happens all the time. And then it's like, why? Why even do it? The decision is done, right? That's yeah. equivalent to like, we left our, this morning at 9 a.m. on a road trip. And then later in the end of the day, you're like, why do we leave at nine? We've already left. We're in the middle of the road trip. But I need, far I, to turn I need to confirm this. I want to feel better. I have a review coming up. I need to tell my boss that that was the right time. This is where stakeholders, uh, this is where researchers and stakeholders start to butt heads. A thing that people, um, especially newer researchers that I talk to in front of mentor, they don't seem to understand is that stakeholders are people too. Sounds like a pithy statement, like, oh, stakeholders are people. Wow, we know that. Uh, Research sucks for them. Is if you go out and if, Matt, you have an amazing idea, you had it in the shower, you solved that problem, you want me to go do some research, maybe we'll put together a small little concept or prototype. I come back and I tell you 15 people saw it. The right 15 people, the people that were trying to help saw this prototype, they all hate it. You're going to get your feelings hurt. And you're going to say, maybe I don't want to do research, right? Because then there's that distance. I thought I knew something, but I was so jazzed up with this idea. And here comes this hard data, facts and figures, numbers, quotes, stories that says your idea was wrong. So then stakeholders are like, I don't want to get my feelings hurt again, right? That's one half of the problem. What gets even worse is when stakeholders 
stop doing research altogether, right? They're like, they don't see our vision. We're not going to put it in front of people. They don't get what we're going for, which doesn't also make sense to me, right? It's like, but you're not going to buy 10,000 copies of this. If you could, you would. You wouldn't build a product. It's not fundamentally for you. So how can you tell a user you don't get it? Then who's supposed to get it? The product team? The marketing team? Like, am I missing something? Are you familiar with the pragmatic marketing framework? I am not, but I like the word pragmatic because that's what I try. I try yeah. I strive to be that. So, um, and I think they might have changed their name recently to Pragmatic Institute, but it, it was, they were really more anchored in the product space. But just something you said is, uh, I, I remember being in a workshop with some pragmatic folks, and they were they were basically like, your opinion, while interesting, <laughs> is not important yes. unless you can commit to me today that you're going to buy a hundred thousand units of that product. <laughs> Uh, you're, you're not your user, you're not your customer. And, uh, it was through pragmatic that one of my favorite, uh, acronyms or initialisms was, uh, Nahito. Mm -hmm. Nothing interesting happens in the office, right? Like I heard you got to get out away from your desk. What does this really look like or feel like Mm -hmm. in the real world to the customer? What are their struggles? Uh, rather than, oh, they just don't get it. And, I've used this example before. I'd love, I'd love like some context stuff, but the short version is you used to do a lot of work for a really large uh, ag machinery company. Okay. And uh, when you have designers with their 27 inch monitors, right. And pixel perfect, right. And sitting at a, de- but get, get into a moving piece of uh, ag machinery, a tractor, a combine, a sprayer that's bouncing around. And usually the operators wearing gloves. All of a right. sudden, these like really elegant touch targets that were really sophisticated and designers were like, you know, patting themselves on the back on how elegant it was. Amazing. Right. And, and all you had to do is just show them this is a struggle that people are having. And so mm-hmm. like, and, and then bringing it back, you know, where the breakthroughs are for me right, is, is, as you were saying, I love your, your concept. You're saying like running towards something or what are you for or positive psychology. And mm-hmm. I'm stealing this from Adam Hansen, uh, he and some co-authors wrote a book called How to Outsmart Your Instincts. And it was okay. you know, a lot of cognitive bias that basically got, as humans, got us to this point, right? We, you and I can have this conversation because right. of the biases our ancestors had that they knew to, to either, uh, you know, fight or flight, respond to that sounds like a tiger in the brush. I don't want to get eaten, right. so I probably should do this. But the problems we're facing forward uh, aren't going to be solved by the same cognitive biases that got us here. So as we and when we all struggle with the biases differently, but one of the, the big concepts he has is forness, right? So organizationally, mm-hmm. what are we for? Let's not talk about what what are we for, and then how how might we best solve that? So I think that's that's another concept. And I was just one of the other things that, as you can hear my voice, absolutely excited about all these topics you're bringing up was uh, you use the word vulnerability. And I think in the modern organization is one of the greatest signs of maturity in a leader is being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but it's basically St. Varun. I don't know, but let's find out rather than here it is. Here's the right answer. You go, you do exactly what I tell you to do and we'll be fine. Right. I mean, if you pull that even further, it's not just, Hey Matt, I don't know. Let's find out together. To me, it's, Hey Matt, I don't know. I cannot find out if we don't do this together. I will spin on something else. If you ask me what I think the company should be studying, oh boy, it is probably very different than what the company thinks it should be studying. But at the end of the day, I don't write a single line of code. I don't put any pixels on a page. I don't do any sort of operations or marketing. I find problems and I reframe them to make sure that we can win on the things that we should win on. I don't do the implementation. So I cannot go out and study something by myself. And I need you to give me the boundaries. You set me on a path. Well, hey, we need to lower the number of missed emails or whatever. Great. I can run towards that with you. I think there's a misconception that, especially in smaller companies, because we wrote our book for smaller companies, the guys that are guys and gals that are by themselves that have to be seen as the expert. It's in that moment that they're told, you're the expert. And you're like, I'm not the expert. I just have a really good set of skills and tools and approaches for some of the problems. 
If you say I'm an expert, it defers and pushes all the weight onto me. And then if it doesn't match this weird, archaic idea you have in your head of what good research is, typically by lots of data, lots of stakeholders, lots of like sample sizes, right? Like that's what makes good research, good research. You're just shifting that to me. And then when I deliver you something, you're going to be like, this isn't it. You're not an expert. I didn't really think you knew what you were doing, right? It's like, we have to do this co-creative process going together. And a part of that is saying, this is what I can do. You're asking me to do eye tracking. Guess what? We have Google Sheets. We can't use that for eye tracking. As much as I would love to try that, I cannot. So let me be open about that with you. Let's come together to do something. The best moments are when stakeholders say to me time and time again, I really felt like I was a part of the process, right? It is the process of research that really separates the bad products from the good products. We all came together. So, yeah, no, it, that that's interesting. And also from kind of a organizational design and psychology perspective, one of the things that I've found helpful too, is when you're working on understanding the problem to get, and then co-creating a solution, there's a few more stakeholders that have skin in the game now on being a little bit more open to how this might work rather than the kind of <laughs> ego driven at the beginning. Here's my solution. I need you to implement it. Right. Right. So, I mean, all, I mean, all designers and researchers say like, hey, I want to be at the start of the funnel. Like, get me at the table. Get me early, early, early. And I think I get that completely. But from a stakeholder's perspective, a lot of times they'll be like, well, we don't need UX yet. We don't need that yet. Because they think- We can pretty it up later. Yeah, yeah. No, no, man. We'll grab <laughs> you in. You can just, you have Adobe? You don't need Adobe. We'll do it in Microsoft Paint. We just need you to come in and UXify it. Make a little button. Hey, can you make it look like a red Facebook? Yeah, that's what we want, right? And then it's like, you're fundamentally missing what this is supposed to do. A lot of stakeholders are like, it's buttons and screens and interactions. And then UX people are like, if you understand people, you can build something that shows them that you understand them, that shows them that you respect them, that you took enough time to have some real frank conversations and realize what are they trying to do? And what do we need to do? And where do they overlap? So user experience to me, like, is that respectful design. The product shows that we get what the Matt Arnolds of the world are really wanting. We're going to put that in front of him. And boy, oh boy, is he going to like it? Is he going to feel understood for once? Is it going to resonate? And then maybe a little money at it. Maybe he'll tell his buddy about it. Maybe that's marketing. Maybe that's viral, right? You're like, all we have to do is help Matt in the best way that we can. That involves getting people to come together early and then support that throughout. Not just, we tested it. We, we did a test. We did a test one time. We UXed it, baby. Check mark. What? Yeah. That's not how anything works. I, I know uh, some organizations where I've been in and you know pushing to do more customer research, especially qualitative research. <laughs> right? And uh, here, well, we, we did something that, like that like five years ago. Right. We, and, and then it's just, let, let's just walk through some of the major things in the world that have changed or changed. In, in those five years, or let's dig into even your, your market. What, how might customer expectations have changed in five years? Right. Right. So I mean, but when, when, when in doubt, say NFT and blockchain, and then we probably, <laughs> we can probably. 100% money, just money at the problem. <laughs> and I don't even get it. The more complex, the more money, because that's apparently the future. But Yeah. Um, and it's something you're, what, what I'm hearing too, in your conversation too, uh, is the complexity. And, and here, a hunch that I have is uh, organizations get in trouble. They get it a little bit sideways when they misdiagnose a tame or complicated problem for a complex one, right? Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of tame problems where, okay, now this is just a pure efficiency issue. It's like, right. right. But when I, when I see kind of organizational fads and because I'm so old, I've seen lots of them come and go, but like six Sigma was all about product output and, and no error. That's great mm -hmm. when, when you have this thing solved to widgets, right? But then on, like on, on new spaces or innovation, like just, with complexity, it's not it's not predetermined. We don't know, and and boundaries and are great for you know like good designers love constraints, and I think good researchers yeah. do too. But don't mm -hmm. don't pretend like we already know this, or don't pretend like it's it's the same problem. I mean, 
even look at Best Buy's evolution from right sound of music to then it was stereo mm-hmm. equipment and then it was can we knock Circuit City out of the game and right and okay. when I when I was at Best Buy that was right when uh, they did knock Circuit City out of the game but there was a small little uh, online bookstore called Amazon that was figuring out what to do right with some other and so the world had changed right customer expectations changed and uh just it's it's interesting over time how those can change and i would argue that one of the solutions is how do you do continuous research basically as can serve as nodes and sensors to help an organization continue to understand mm-hmm. what they need i mean do. it's continuous research to me is just feedback are you getting feedback meaningful feedback from the people people are like but we have metrics but we have but we have a dashboard we have all these graphs and it's like great that's one side of the story you're looking at behavioral metrics super important what are people clicking on what are they buying what are they doing invaluable we'll not say that's like garbage what is important though is why did they do that they clicked on something they found some sort of meaning with what we're doing or they didn't and that might not show up in your metric. One of the things in metrics is like, it is a simple recording of things that have happened. That, that is it. Fundamentally, that's what a metric is. Guess what? You didn't record the right thing. You're going to try to interpret and extrapolate meaning from your metrics that don't. If I'm right. trying to measure how fast somebody runs and I measure like how wide their head is, that's a metric. We've measured the head size of multiple runners. How fast are they running? Couldn't tell you. Well, maybe because you measured the wrong thing. And then the question is, what is the right thing to measure? Well, why not talk to the people that are invested in using your product? They are going to show you, maybe measure this. Maybe you don't need to know this other thing on the other side. So, Well, when we do launch the, uh, uh, the hat store on our product roadmap, we, we'll, we'll have the head size nice. nailed. That's important, though. That's important. Because the bigger the head size, more square footage to put logos on the hat. I think that's oh, important, uh, pivotal. Yeah, we, we're, we're going we're gonna to sell some real estate there. We're going to have some, some great uh, cross-brand partnerships. Uh, this, this thing sells itself. Yeah. Can you go out and do research to validate that? We're going to do it anyway. Your research will be inconsequential. We will not even look at the deck. We'll be mad that it is a deck. But could you go out and spend three weeks doing that and make sure you get a lot of participants and more data than you know what to do with and it'll sit in our share drive someplace, and eventually we'll delete it because legal said we have to delete it. Can you do that? Are you happy? It's like, <laughs> so let me ask on a research side, this kind of uh, might be too nerdy and inside baseball for anybody listening except us, but uh, in the research process, do you have, do you have a, a part that, that really energizes you? Like, do you, is it, is it more the, the design of a study? Is it, is it doing, doing the research itself, the data collection? Is it the analysis synthesis? Is there a favorite part? I mean, for me, it's really contingent on what the problem is. If I'm yeah. working with like a senior stakeholder, maybe someone in the C-suite at Best Buy, a lot of it is problem. Tell me about the problem. Tell me about the problem over and over. What is it? What are we trying to look at? And if you ask a few questions, uh, have you heard of the whole like ask three whys concept? We need to increase market share. Why? And then you keep going down that line. That's a good strategy. What I found if you do that is after a certain point, people get uncomfortable. They're like, well, somebody told me to do it, man. I don't know. (laughs) Like, Yeah, I tell my, uh, so the innovation class that I teach, we we use the five whys. Like if you dig mm -hmm. in five whys to get at root cause. Uh, but you're, you're, the, the thing that is super uncomfortable is yeah, by about the third why is when somebody is confronted that they don't know. Yeah. And, and you know, as, as a researcher and what I'm hearing from you too, like the positive, it's okay, man. It's okay not to know. We're here to find out. But what, one of the things we're trying to do is where do we think our level of knowledge really starts to fall apart what do we really need to know right but Mm -hmm. when we when we pretend that we know we're not going to have good research targets so we're not going to have valuable research but if it was super healthy conversation it might be varun that's great is i understand it down to two whys but Mm -hmm. i gotta tell i'm really this third why i'm really stuck and could you help me kind of like even dig into what that might be what that answer might be or other areas to investigate so that we know 
I mean, if you get to the whys, if you're able to have a meaningful conversation with someone, then you're able to get to the three whys, four whys, you know, what is that? That's so, like, that's so abstract. If you can do that, what I think about is I've now set a relationship. I've now set a benchmark for what this person can expect from me. I'm going to take the time to get your perspective. Nobody else in the room, just me and my computer. And a few set of questions. If you let me, maybe I'll record it and I'll transcribe it. What I care about, especially the higher up in the company that you work with, is you want to build that relationship. They should see you as a resource, right? Someone that we can throw at a problem. This person is going to declutter. They're going to help us clarify what's important. Every study is not going to be the world's greatest study. That's just fundamentally not going to make sense. That's like every single uh, dish that a chef makes is the world's best. So fundamentally, that doesn't make any sense. But the study that we do right now could have been okay. Maybe we got something, you know, maybe we learned one thing that we didn't, that's okay. But the next study, I've built up this relationship. You are much more likely to call me maybe earlier than you did last time. You're much more to invest. Can I come with you, Varun? Can we come into the field? Come with me. Come be a note taker. Maybe just live stream if you can, right? It's that benchmark for repeated research that you get to do. And you're like, wow, I really like research. I'm involved. It's integrated. It's built into our roadmap. This, this thing is actually really helpful, not just a checkbox to do and say, we did it. Let's just get it out there. Right, right. Varun, one of the themes that I talk to guests about is advice uh, and uh, could be good advice that you might have received from a mentor and how you unpack it later you, that you see that it was a pretty elegant uh, uh, information mm-hmm. payload in what they delivered. Like maybe when you're younger, you don't quite get it, but you still use it today. Uh, others, other forms of advice, you know, stealing from Austin Kleon, steal like an artist is like when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Uh, right. If you don't mind either or both, uh, is there some good advice you had? along your journey or advice that that you would give to others? Mm-hmm. Two things come to mind. Um, one of them was from a very foundational conversation I had during my, I think it was like my fifth study at Best Buy. I was in New York and I was, uh, I was, I was studying a thing and I had to go to a bunch of different markets. And while I was already there, I'm a big fan of networking and I don't know who I don't know. And I'm fine being the dumbest person in the room. That just tells me I have the most runway to go because I can learn the most, right? And so I set up a bunch of conversations with different research managers and researchers in New York. One of them was with Brooke Baldwin. I think she now is the uh, research lead at WhatsApp. Back when we were talking, we walked around, not Central Park, I forget the name of the park, but we were walking around and she said something and she's like, researchers are evil. And I was like, what? But we help people and we do good in the world. And then she explained and she had this great concept of like, When we tell people things, sometimes it's not what they want to hear. They are not going to like every single value or statistic or quote you put in front of them. Your job isn't to give them what they want. Your job is to understand and then refine it to such a clear message that someone looks at it and says, okay, I get it now. I'm able to reframe my thinking around it. And so that has been powerful. You are going to do research that someone in the room is going to be upset by because it challenges their roadmap. It challenges the story that they sold somebody else, maybe about the research or where this product was going, or they're going to look at it and say what we talked about earlier. Well, these people don't get it. Give me their phone number and I'll contact them and I'll tell them how dumb they are. And it's like, but it's supposed to work for them, right? Like it's supposed to be for them. So this concept of researchers are evil has always resonated with me. And I think about how do I frame the findings? How do I frame them? What am I doing with that? Right? I'm making decisions the entire time. I'm choosing to collect some data from some people in some situations. I analyze some of the data in some ways, and I present some of it to you in one particular medium. So what am I doing with that? And like, can I frame it in a way that everybody understands? Not necessarily that everybody wins, right? So there's that one. And the second one earlier on, in my journey, uh, one of my mentors, Kezra Cornell, my only mentor as a UX person, she gave me a lot of support. So if you're going to start new in your journey, finding that mentor is super fantastic. 
And I made sure to make it as low stakes for her. It was like maybe a coffee once or twice a month. I would do some stuff outside, read some articles. I'd go out and practice stuff and I'd come back and we'd have coffee about it. She's like, hey, how about this? How about that? And she asked me questions. Why did you do that way? And I would say, it was in an article on something, someplace at one time. I don't know. Like, I, that's a great question. We have conversations. So having that mentor was fantastic because she refined and helped me focus on what I wanted to do that was important. And that's actually one of uh, the things that we have on a special link for the Iowa podcast listeners. We have, after my first year being a professional researcher, that first year journey when I was like, I know nothing about it to I am now doing this as a as a job, as a career. I wrote up that entire year and I wrote it down and it's on that link. So if people want to see all those little details, how did I go from nothing to like now I'm actually doing this professionally? I think that article is going to help shed some light and give somebody like, maybe, maybe I could do this too. Awesome. And uh, in the spirit of researcher to researcher, were there any topics we didn't cover today that you thought we might touch upon? Uh, uh, I mean, this is like four apple and banana. We just, Dana Kingery just joined our team. She's an absolutely fantastic illustrator. So she's redesigning our entire visual design. And she is, she showed us a mock because we had a con, like conversation and she showed us a concept that she's working on. And in that moment, what she had on her screen, it was just like a rough sketch, yeah, yeah. felt more like apple and banana than what was currently Apple Banana. So we've been so excited to have her on the team. She's going to be foundational to the illustrations in the book. And so we're excited. Check out applebanana.org to kind of see what it is now and how we're moving to be more human, more accessible, more engaging in that sense. Thank you. And the book, uh, what is, is it, what's the timeline on availability for the book? Summer 2021 is what we're saying right now. Uh, all and to be fairly honest, I've never written a book. It is by far the most challenging and stressful thing uh, I've ever done. Uh, here's a quotable moment for your listeners. If you want to feel smart, read a book. If you want to feel dumb, write a book. I have never felt more humbled in my entire life. I think I know something. I write a sentence and I'm like, maybe I don't. And that's been so powerful. And I'm able to really refine my thoughts. But summer 2021 is what we're shooting for. We're going to do digital as well as physical, working with a small time a local Minneapolis publisher. And we really want to invest into the quality, not just it is a book, but we want it to something that you can have a relationship with, that you can dog ear and flip to and write your notes. We want that kind of book because that's what we wanted. Uh, that's at least what I wanted when I was trying to get yeah. into, uh, into the game. Well, that, that's great. Varun, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights and, uh, yeah, I'm so excited about what uh, you and the Apple and Banana team are doing. Uh, so excited to keep an eye out for the the book as well. And and as you mentioned, uh, and I'll make sure that it is in the episode description that special link for folks if they want to check out that that journey. Mm -hmm. So appreciate you uh, taking the time, sharing that, and also being vulnerable because I'm assuming it's just not year one started. I was awesome. <laughs> End of year. Right. <laughs> That's how it goes, right? That's how it's been. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, thank you for uh, for having me onto the show. I hope everyone got a little nugget. I hope somebody that just like maybe scrubbed through the podcast was like, "Hey, now, well, this was this was interesting." Yeah. So uh, appreciate you having me on, and excited to continue to follow the Iowa podcast. Uh, excellent, and uh, yeah, do me a favor sometime and just uh, uh, give somebody a uh, Mary Tyler Moore uh, hat throw in the air when you're walking around Minneapolis, and just 100%. say Matt says hi. Just throw it at somebody. <laughs> Matt says hi. Who's Matt? You don't know Matt? Give me back my hat. Give me, give me back my hat. So, right off. All right. Have a fantastic day. You too. Take care. Bye.